0: Hello, I'm Oliver Wong.
1: And I'm Morgan Rhodes. You're listening to Heat Rocks.
0: Every episode, we invite guests to join us to talk about heat rock, you know, a mineral warm to excessive temperatures, (laughs) or I suppose, a good album. And today, we will be spinning the clock back to 1972 in the monster double LP, Exile on Main Street by the Rolling Stones.
1: For most people, seeing 93% on a piece of paper is a reason to celebrate, permission to boast about a job well done. Depending on your gaze, 93% was also dope for the Stones, who managed to flip a fiscal hiccup, a 93% tax hike, into a double album, considered by critics to be one of the greatest double albums of all time. Imagine that. Imagine an album that becomes canonical because your squad has a basement in his crib. <laughs> Exile is an air sign born May the 12th in the year of our Lord, 1972. Different than Sticky Fingers and different than Let It Bleed. Keith Richards said he was more rock. Mick was more roll. Whatever. Blues and Soul was the star of the story. Showed up hot and heavy on the tracks with, according to Robert Christgau, familiar tales, Sex as Power, Sex is love, sex is pleasure. Eight million albums later, it was simply hot sex on a platter. Welcome to Exile on Main Street.
0: talk about Excel and Main Street we invited Chris Ryan executive editor at The Ringer I first met Chris about oh my god it's been close to 20 years now and it's been a delight to follow his career through the years especially when he first joined up with Grantland and now it's 2.0 iteration at The Ringer Chris hosts or contributes to an absurd number of podcasts on the ringer network. I feel like they just keep you locked inside of a recording studio all day long. And my two favorites are the watch, the very super smart pop culture pod that he does with former TV critic and Chris's childhood BFF, Andy Greenwald and the rewatchables where the ringer crew talks about their favorite films. It's like Heat Rocks, but for movies. Chris is also one of the funniest people I've ever had the pleasure of meeting, and I'm thrilled to have him join us. Chris, thanks for coming through.
2: I feel like I have to have wild jokes now. Yeah. (laughs) yeah, It's
0: okay. I'm sure it'll happen no matter what. So, look. It is no secret that you are a Philly dude, that you are into hip-hop. So I figured for certain you would pick an album by, I don't know, Freeway, Beanie Siegel, maybe you take it back to like the days of Cool C. But no, you wanted to talk about an English band recording an album while they were hiding out from British tax collectors coked out of their minds in various French villas, which is totally cool. We can certainly roll with that. But let's start with this. How did you get started with the Stones. Uh,
2: So the Stones were always on in my house. My dad uh, was from England. Uh, My mom loved the Stones. She grew up Mm. a New Yorker in the the 50s and 60s. And around the house, they always had on Hot Rocks, the the singles compilation and the greatest hits compilation that the Stones had. And they especially had a predilection for the earlier stuff, the R&B covers, the cute, nice haircuts, tight suits (laughs) that fit really well, the mod (laughs) Stones. And, you know, as I got older and I became more and more obsessive about music and I started working in record stores, my first job out of high school was working at a record store called Plastic Fantastic uh, in Philadelphia. And, you know, you start uh, kind of flipping through the stacks and I knew, I think I knew about Exile on Main Street as as something that existed, but I had never listened to it. I'd never heard of any of the songs. Those weren't on any of my parents' clean and tidy Stones CDs. And Mm. then I saw this double album, and it uh, looked like Moby Dick. It weighed about as much as Moby (laughs) Dick weighs. It was this giant gatefold with all these pictures, and the credits were kind of messily drawn on it, Mm. and I just didn't understand it. And that's the best feeling you can have with music, is when you come across something, and it becomes a point of obsession and a point of mystery. And what's incredible about the Stones is that they made this mystery box when they were the most popular band in the world, which yeah. is something that's pretty rare. Um, then you get into it, and it's the R-rated movie. Uh, <laughs> the Stones was, I did not, I was not familiar with the behavior that they were talking about when I first heard it. And I wasn't really that much of like a rock and roll kid. Yeah. You know, I wasn't like, oh, it's all about this tight t-shirt and my cigarette. Um <laughs> And girls, like I'm, you know, like, I loved all those things, yeah, but not to the level that they did, obviously. And I felt like it was just a huge. It was just a gateway drug. It was a gateway drug to 60s R and B. It mm. was a gateway drug to the blues. It was a gateway drug to country. It was a gateway drug to glam rock, which is basically it comes out of this early 70s stuff, and it still sounds as fresh as it did the first time I heard it, and it basically has on a couple of different levels whether it's the guitar playing the drumming the piano playing the platonic ideal of what i think rock should sound like
1: speaking of gateway drugs yeah. pretty much everyone was high yes during the recording yeah. of the album i saw the documentary last night mm-hmm. And uh, t- to see what was going on in the studio was different than just to hear the album and to have those rumors about everyone being high, but to really like to see yeah. everyone being high. I wanted to ask the question to you. Do you think this album would have been considered as great had it not been for, you know, the way that they recorded this album? Yeah, in the, the, the mythology mindset, around Yeah, it. yeah. Would <sighs> it have been considered as great without that?
2: It doesn't hurt. It doesn't <laughs> hurt to have a story. And I think that that was... Um, But I will say that I did not learn the story of the making of the record or the tax problems and Keith Richards' heroin habit and Marseille gangsters running in and taking nine guitars away from him in the middle of the night or middle of the day, as it were. Uh, I think it functions without that myth, but the myth doesn't hurt.
0: Just for the benefit of our listeners, because we've alluded to some of this backstory, but we actually haven't explained it. Do you want to explain a little bit about the mythology behind the making of the album?
2: Yeah, sure. So they, they made this record over the course of about three years, from uh, like 70 until March of 72, I think. And it was after Altamont, where they had played this big free concert, and there had been a, a stabbing right in front of the stage while they were performing. It's actually captured in the concert film, um, and that had been sort of this... Mile marker of like the end of the peace and love 60s. Mm-hmm. Now, you can also look at that and say, well, that was always present. That dark side of that right. kind of lifestyle was always present. And it's just that that finally the snow globe got flipped and we saw it. But I think that this record very much comes out of that time period. And like you said, they had been pursued by the British government. Yeah. For, the labor government had basically instituted this tax rate on Rich people, so that I think in the documentary they say, if you made a million pounds, you actually only walk away with like seventy thousand pounds right so these guys fled England and in rock star fashion, popped up on the south of in the south of France, and they all occupied richards had this this house specifically in nelcote, I believe it was, and they all had houses around there, but Richards was essentially he, his mansion there was the base of operations he was there with his girlfriend, Anita. And um, he had recently gotten clean off of heroin and then uh, relapsed back Mm. hard into it because Mm. he got into a go-kart accident and (laughs) tore up his back. And he got on morphine and then he got back on Uh. heroin, so there's junk going around there. And basically, this record sounds like the best band in the world in a room together playing these cuts live and is in fact piecemeal cuts of various takes of one guy on drums and then he disappears for three days and another guy comes and finishes it, or Richards is playing bass, or, you know, Jimmy Miller is playing drums, the guy who produced the record, and then it all gets finished in L.A. months later by Mick Jagger, largely, at sunset. So it's just this miracle where it's this collage of different times and days and performances that comes together to sound like the most organic, live-sounding record I've ever come across.
1: Considering that uh, many of the pieces were recorded in different rooms, you got the mobile truck outside, yeah. you got dudes in the basement, dudes upstairs, a gang of kids, and the aforementioned cocktail of various yes. drugs. Yeah. But what I think it adds to the sound of it is the fuzz. Yes. Um, If I could ca- characterize the album in a word, it's fuzzy. Yeah. It just has that feeling of fuzz that I wouldn't have been able to appreciate had I not seen the sure. documentary. Because I wasn't familiar with the album. Once I saw it, I was like, well, shit, everyone's high in here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's You know why who saw...
2: agrees with you is Mick Jagger.
1: But shout out to Mick, okay? <laughs> we right here, buddy. Because when they,
2: when they finished the record, I think when it came out, he was pretty much like, eh. He was like, it's, it's kind of disjointed. I don't know. And he wanted to make, he wanted to move away from the Roots Rock stuff that Keith that's Keith's bread and butter. And Mm -hmm. by all accounts, Mick was like, I want to try different stuff. I want to try different stuff. And Keith was like, we will. Here's the cathedral rock and roll before we move on.
1: What was going on? I mean, I know there was some drama in the band before the recording of this album. But why the decision to go in this direction, this type, these levels of sounds on this album?
2: Why why this way? I think there was always a push and pull between Mick and Keith in the band. And this is, to me at least, this is a very Keith record. Obviously, it was recorded in his house. But the looseness hmm. of it, and his aesthetic, which was essentially and I think in the documentary they talk about this, he would just mess around during the day and they would sort of like barely be functional and sort of they'd try to get through a couple of chords or a couple of passes on something, and then all of a sudden at night, and he locks in and he can do a song pretty much on one or two passes, and they put it together i mean one of the things that's important to note is that even though he looks like a train wreck, he's actually a brilliant songwriter, a brilliant um, synthesizer of different sounds coming through. And he has a very straightforward, but beautiful guitar sound and and style. That's very obviously pulling a lot from Jimmy Reed and some Harpo and all these good blues guitars that he loves, but also has that, that Steve Cropper, Booker T and the MGs, like sticking on the dots and kind of playing yeah. the notes that in the order that they're supposed to come in. And I think that that was the tension in the band. Keith was pulling them in this wild, almost, spontaneous direction, whereas Mick is a little bit more like, it has to have a chorus here somewhere, right? You know, we have to do, we have to bring in the hand claps at some point. Sure.
0: Yeah. Is this their best album? Great question.
2: (laughs) Fantastic question. (laughs) Um, Let It Bleed and Sticky Fingers Are Tighter. Okay. This is my favorite. And this has, I actually like double albums that have filler. I like double albums that have mistakes and that have, wrong turns. Hmm. It's like it's like a road trip. It's like the, the road trip gets better because you made a mistake somewhere along the way and had to correct it somehow. Right. Or,
0: you stopped at the Waffle House and you re- realized you shouldn't have. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly,
2: exactly. You got lost somewhere. You yeah. get lost on this record. I think mm. that that's a valuable experience. I, lo- <laughs> I love... I don't always have time for it. You know what I mean? I always have time for the skits or the things that probably should have left, been left on the cutting room floor. But there's something kind of remarkable about having... You know, just want to see his face in here as like this kind of buffer between between other songs. Most bands would leave that out.
1: But since you mentioned skits, and and that's what I love about hip hop albums, yeah. especially the long ones. I would give anything to have heard some skits on this album because I can only imagine what would have been yeah. said. Yeah. You know what would what will we have heard? What we what will we have learned about the process? If only we had on. Prince
2: Paul for this record. Damn
1: it. <laughs> Um, somewhere in the documentary, I think it is Keith, that says, this is a synthesis of black music mm-hmm. and white music. What else is it besides those two things? What else is it a
2: synthesis of? I think it's a bridge in time. I think it's a bridge in, like, especially sonically coming out of, I, I like a lot of classic rock, but it's kind of light. Um, this is pretty heavy record. Charlie Watts is actually the star of this record mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Like. His drum sound is very distinctive, and it feels very... I only imagine that you could do that drum sound when you're so powerful that a record company can't tell you your drums are too loud. Mm. Um, Zeppelin would eventually have like that cannon shot of drum sound. But right. to me, when I heard this, that was the thing that jumped out at me the most was just how like popping his snare sound is. And, and it really holds down and changes these, essentially like a bunch of these... Bluesy country folk rock songs into these m- rock monsters, you know, like these really like aggressive and loud uh, dynamics. So I think that there's something about the page being turned sonically and like what people thought rock music could do at some point here.
0: One thing I gotta bring up about this album, and really about the Rolling Stones in general, is their relationship to race and their relationship to blackness. And there's no song on this album that that really brings this up for you more than their track, Sweet Black Angel.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That was Sweet Black Angel, which, on the one hand, was a dedication to Angela Davis. On the other hand, sounds like Stephen Foster might have written it back in the 1850s with Mick dropping the N-bomb there. And look, I want to totally embrace the idea that R&B and rock are really just two sides of the same coin, and they're really just false genre divisions created by a white recording industry, which is historically all true. And I certainly do not want to begrudge any artist of any stripe from dabbling in the traditions of whatever music they're into. But I got to keep it 100, which is that the Stones for me, and I can't really even put my finger on why them as opposed to, let's say, I don't know, Creedence Clearwater that does something very similar on a lot of their music. Anytime they get into this old timey sound, it's really hard for me. And maybe I'm missing something in terms of why I should be more generous to them on it, because yeah, the, for whatever it is, it's just, the, the Stones make it tough for me to, to, to be as embracing of that as I feel like I should be. And I wonder if either of you have any thoughts on this in terms of what is it that the stones are doing that I'm missing, perhaps, or maybe you know, maybe my my discomfort with it is is legit here.
1: My discomfort's equal. You know how I feel about brown sugar. Yeah,
0: yeah, which we've talked about on. Many a previous pod.
1: Come on now. And as you said, I mean, this could have been dope if this was just a celebration of Angela Davis, but why celebrate her and then drop those N-bombs? I think the problem for me has always been with the Stones, and in the documentary they, they also mention Elvis Presley, is the music that they loved and the music um, that they admired and the music that they imitated, those musicians didn't get as much press mm. as they did. Mm. And that will always linger with me. No, I know it's, you know, it's been said that he's, you know, he's given love where love is due. He shouted out these musicians. He, he name-checked a few of them in the documentary, yeah. Robert Johnson, right? But that's always bothered me, the thin line between admiration and appropriation. And I don't know if we are able to work it out on this album. Sure. I love the nod to blues. I love the nod to soul. Um, I had a problem with Sweet Black Angel. Yeah. Yeah. Just, I just got to keep it real on that. No, part.
2: it's not. It's, it's not that I'm not going to be. Playing that at any of my like <laughs> upcoming like birthday parties or anything. Look, like the same way I said it with the double album, where you kind of like the mistakes. I don't support obviously the the usage of the, of that word by him. I am interested in them showing their ass, which they do a lot mm-hmm. throughout their career. Where they did it on Bitch, they did it on Brown Sugar, they mm-hmm. do it on on this record. I have the luxury of looking back and being like, isn't that interesting? And it's not, it, it, you know, it doesn't hurt me in the same way it would hurt someone else. Um, but it's a it's a fascinating conversation to have and to look back, especially at when this record was made and uh, what was going on in the world. It, good intentions don't really matter. You know, sure. Keith Richards just basically being like, I, I wish I was uh, Little Richard or I wish I was Chuck Berry. That's all I ever wanted to be. Yeah. And Mick doing all the appropriation that he considers tribute is it's actually kind of fascinating to talk about now. But it's important not to lionize without checking it.
1: What are we missing about that song? What's important about Sweet Black Angel? What what were they really trying to say?
2: I think they were trying to pay tribute to her, but I think that they thought like they were speaking in a vernacular, you know. I'm not I'm not letting him off the hook. I right. mean, it's 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 messed up.
0: I mean, he does Mick does the same thing on the the Slim Harpo cover. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, which is um Shake Your Hips. Yeah. shake your The thing is, I think part of it, I'm just working all this out literally as, we, we, as we're we sitting here, but the Beatles covering, let's say, an Isley Brothers song is, to me, you can hear the Beatles take it in a slightly different direction. I don't want to quite use the term making it their own because that's really cliche and we've, we've used that on the show way too much. That's a good one, though. But. I think with the Stones, what they're doing to me doesn't—it's not really a cover. It just sounds like they're trying to do the Slim Harpo, like Slim Harpo would do it. And there's something about the mimicry of it that I think is what gets to me. But at the same time, you know, despite this, I find myself—and I had never listened to most of this album prior to prepping for the show—but something like "Sweet Virginia" that should have gotten my gander up. I'm like yo, I kind of like this, I kind of like this track. I kind (laughs) of like hearing them do this, this country, like like an old school country blues jam, despite the fact that it makes me slightly uncomfortable too. And, And again, I can't really quite piece apart what that ambivalence is about in terms of what makes me like it and what makes me not, well, actually, I can articulate what makes me not like it, but it's harder to articulate what I like about it. and chris again i'm not i'm we're not trying to get you to be the the devil's advocate apologist here but because that is so much a part of this album yeah. i mean that that Element of it is is completely irremovable from what makes Exile and Main Street the album that it is. When you first started listening to it, what was it that you were hearing and processing? Because you were probably absorbing musical styles from across the spectrum working at a record store. So what was it? What was that mix on this album? What made it interesting to you?
2: Probably the Sonics in general, and the fact that my concept of what a popular band should sound like, with the vocals up here and the bass and drums down there, and the guitars doing. These two very specific things and one's a lead and one's a rhythm and then they complement each other and then there's a chorus. The ability to hear that all being torn apart on tape, to be to hear them deconstructing mm-hmm. what a rock band should sound like while still staying within this the confines of like this is a beat combo that's playing like it's bass drums, guitar with vocals, and we're gonna stay within these walls, but we're gonna knock the walls down as we're mm-hmm. making the record. And there's something there was something really Exciting about that when I heard it. and It's still exciting to me now. Do you find that the latchkey kid part of it? Like it's like the stones looking at America and looking at um, American culture from afar and yes, appropriating it, vampiring it for sure. Do you find that interesting or do you find that just something that you
0: reject? It's a great question. I don't know if I ever really thought of it through that lens. I mean, I'm certainly aware of the trend because so many uh, so many artists, again, especially coming out of Britain at the time, were were doing this. I think it's hard as someone who didn't start listening to The Rolling Stones way until the 1980s. And so it's hard for me to put this album in the context of when they're recording it. And despite knowing what the history of pop music was in that era and how so many different artists were drawing from influences from the 50s and 60s, I think it's a a completely legit point. I think it's hard for me emotionally to be able to identify with that sense of fascination and of reverence and what it is and how that influenced what they were trying to do with this album. And again, not just the Stones, but dozens if not hundreds of artists who did not grow up in the American South, but were clearly in love and passionate and inspired by what those traditions introduced into the world
2: i'll put it this way so my dad grew up uh in in london and he was born uh right at the end of world war ii and played bass in little like what we would think of as like really bad beat combos but they weren't they were still like pop music like pop standard versions of that and you know it'd be like what you would hear at a At a hall, at in you know, or a VFW hall, basically, and the way he describes it, the way my mom describes it, is that when the Beatles and the Stones came along, that the entire world went Technicolor in a way that it just the the cultural significance Mm. of that was pretty huge on them. The way he describes life before those bands and before those bands kind of introducing this R and B sound to rock and roll is really I think instructive because there were like people just didn't have access to Slim Harpo records back then so they wouldn't this was the first they were ever hearing of the blues and that's that's like its own conversation and problem right right but I kind of think that it's interesting to think about what life must have been like when the Stones themselves first heard those blues records and that I do think it's a sincere tribute I just don't think it economically ever paid it, it ever evened out
1: I don't know I mean, I also don't begrudge anyone their their love of a particular genre, uh, them being influenced. Um, um, you know, maybe sonically speaking, maybe imitation is the highest form of flattery.
0: We've been on this point for minutes. We don't have to be labored too much more. Sure. One thing that does come to mind, though, is because I grew up only listening to The Stones' hits— the Same. stuff on this album, that the songs that we're talking about, mm-hmm. were not the stuff that was being played on the radio. Right. So to me, it's like I'm hearing this, in this case, with this album, literally I'm listening to it for the first time Same. as in like this past week. And so it feels weird to me, partly because I didn't grow up yeah. thinking of this as what the Rolling Stones do, even though intellectually I understand because I've read enough about them. Sure. This is what they did for like much of that, you know, the first 10, 15 years of their career. Right. Um, so I think part of my... Discomfort is simply being introduced to something that is actually an integral part to who they were and is not – shouldn't be a surprise unless, of course, you only know them through their greatest hits uh, compilations and whatnot.
1: And that would be me. Like what I knew of the Stones was Start Me Up. And uh, if Mick comes out doing that crazy dance, it's got to be—I can't get no satisfaction. <laughs> That's what I knew of the Stones, right? <laughs> so I'm going back, and and of course uh, Sticky Fingers and and some of that stuff right, that we right. talked about. Yeah. So this is an education for me too. That said, there are some hits on here. Yeah. So I can see why the critics um, loved it. Like tumbling dice is a jam. <laughs> I went back and forth on whether this was my favorite track from the album. It was sort of between this and Shine a Light. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the vocal arrangement on this, so this pushes it for me over the top. When you pull this album out again to bump it, what's the first track? If you're not listening to it in order, what's the first track you go that, to? This one. This one, yeah. okay. Uh, this really, one
2: doesn't yeah. sound like anything I've ever heard before or so mm. since. And I think there's, like, six accidents on this, you know? I I don't—why did they tell Charlie to stop drumming for that amount of bars, but then come back in? But when he comes back in, he makes it sound like 15 Mustangs starting their engines (laughs) instead of actually just going back into the beat. There's this whole thing where, like, the verses start long and get shorter and shorter, and the choruses go longer and longer. Mm. And then it's just, like— this song could go on for 22 minutes and I'd probably be like keep, keep it coming because yeah. at the end they just faded out uh, I, I think it's one of the little miracles of rock music
0: I think for this, for Tumbling Dice, I think what really does it for me, in addition to everything that you're talking about, Chris, is just the work of the backup vocalists. Yeah. And just to give a shout out to Clyde King, uh, Vanetta Fields and Shirley Matthews is that back and forth, the the call and response dynamic. Just to have their presence there, I think adds a complete new and added vocal and sonic layer to this that really helps to tie all this other magic together, as, as we've been talking about.
2: The Vanetta story of, of, of how this went down was is really great. I love it. Sure. She's yeah. just uh, living in Malibu, and she has a gig coming up singing backups for Nancy Sinatra in Vegas. So, But there's this coat she really wanted to buy that she had seen, and, she wanted, and the Stones paid cash. So she was like, I didn't really like the Stones, but the Stones paid cash, so yeah. I was like, I'll do it. <laughs> so she drove down. And uh, did did this session, and they did three or four songs, and you know Mick came out and was like, "Oh yeah, you know, man, just do like this, but then you whatever you want." And like like, they did, like the the, she was just like, and then we just sang it. We just we just like listened to it twice and just started going. And then they would play it, they would mess around and come back and be like, "What if we try it like this?" And she, you know, she was she just crushed it. It's this like the backing vocals on this record. Are like the, the secret MVP of the album.
1: Did the backup singers come to the location in the south of France? No, too, they were they... in LA. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. okay. Yeah. Because I didn't see them in the documentary. I was like, where were the sisters?
0: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Chris, I just think you should do the rest of this show in faux Mac. It is pretty good. Yeah, yeah, is pretty you make pretty good. <laughs> we'll be back with more of a conversation with Chris Ryan about Exile and Main Street by the Rolling Stones after this brief word from a couple of our Max Fun sibling podcasts. Keep it locked. Paul Parker panel we have just 30 seconds to prove to max on listeners that we know what the f we're talking about when it comes to pop culture all right you guys let's go famous chrises walk in christopherson Him is worth. karen what's the most iconic lesbian snack
1: the wings at hooters
0: The answer is fried green tomatoes. Margaret, what is the Marvel Cinematic Universe missing? My interest. Winter, name someone who will EGOT in your lifetime. Ike Barinholtz. That's beautiful. Top Gear or Top Model? Sadly, I have to say Top Gear. The clear answer is Top Chef. But Top Model taught us about smizing. Pop Rocket, smart takes on everything. Catch us every Friday on Maximum Fun. Is there a dog in a car at a bar on the street? Yay! I'm Elaine Gringo, a small dog owner. My dog Pistachio howls when she's excited. And I'm Renee Culvert, a big dog owner. My dog Tugboat
2: tips over when he's sleepy.
0: And we co-host a podcast called Can I Pet Your Dog that airs every Tuesday. We bring you all things dog. Yes, dog news, dog tech, dogs we met this week. We also have pretty famous guests on Butt Legs. We're not going to let them talk about their projects. No. Just want to hear about those dogs. We don't want to hear about your stuff, only your dogs. So join us every Tuesday on Max Fun.
1: <laughs> we are back on Heat Rocks talking Exile on Main Street from the Rolling Stones with our guest, Chris Ryan. You said you liked even the mistakes in this album. Mm-hmm. Talk about the mistakes. Any songs that you think... Uh,
2: I mean, aside from the actual cultural mistakes that we've sure.
1: discussed. Sonic mistakes are songs that you like. Oh, no, man.
2: Um... I don't listen to Turd on the Run very often. (laughs) (laughs) Part of it is when it comes on in my car and I look at it on the dashboard, I'm just like, I've gotten to a point in my life where I don't need to listen to a song called Turd on the Run. But one of the cool things about double records and, and, and long albums in general and just also albums that you spend 10, 20 years with in your life is that then, like, weirdly, you're like, I'm super into side C now. That's who I am. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? And uh, so at one point or another, I've probably had a love affair with every song on this
0: record for one reason or another. Yeah. So is Tumbling Dice your fire track off of this album?
2: I think yeah, tumbling dice is my favorite song on the album, but rocks off I think is the thesis statement for the record. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the weird things about this is I'm I'm like really a very big lyrics person. Um, I think it's probably what drew me to my most of my lifelong love affair with rap music and the lyrics on this record are like not good (laughs) they
1: are are
2: useless they're they're essentially like was someone playing dice in the room cool let's make a song called Tumbling Dice by the way it's one of the five best rock songs ever made but you know with all this stuff happening around the time like Bob Dylan and everything that was like with these these, you know records that really like articulated something this doesn't articulate anything except for the fact that Keith Richards was probably on his way to death dying on a heroin overdose. <laughs> and a lot of the songs are about their friendship and they're very effective and moving if you think about it that way. A lot of these songs are mixed saying Saw You Stretched Out in Room 1009. You know, like I, the, the idea of Rocks Off I always thought was when I was a teenager I was like, oh, Rocks Off like because it's really cool to dream and you, when you're dreaming you you really have fun and then I realized oh, it's heroin and he's getting his rocks off because he's tripping through the day at lightning speed and all this stuff and yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that of all the records in the world that I could have chosen, I chose one where I was like, the lyrics are sort of besides the point <laughs> to me.
1: What's the track that people miss on this album that goes under the radar that no one's talking about but it, but might be fire?
2: I think it, it has a, a very good reputation among Stones fans, but since we didn't talk about it for the rest of the pod, I did want to mention Happy. Happy, which was apparently recorded uh, over the course of a day. It was written mm. and recorded over the course of a day. It is uh, one of two songs that Keith sings. He is a bad singer. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but when the horns come in it's a four alarm fire it's just it's so fun and it was actually it's uh it's jimmy miller playing drums and bobby keys playing the horns and then keith i think played everything else miraculously so it has that aesthetic of let's just throw this against the wall and see what sticks and Mm. it stuck I, i still really love happy
0: I'm glad you brought up Bobby Keys, because I think one of the things, to go back to Rocks Off, that one of my favorite parts about that song is when the horn section comes in, which not expecting at all and it sounds like especially in that era it makes me think of Tower of Power it thinks of all mm-hmm. these uh, funk groups that have these massive horn sections and really it's just two guys it's Jimmy Price and Bobby Keys at least who are accredited at least but that brass element just adds a whole other layer to what makes these songs really cook.
2: Yeah there's a bunch of songs on here that, that Nicky Hopkins is essentially playing lead instrument on piano I mean Let It Loose is essentially a Nicky Hopkins song mm-hmm. that they're singing over. Mm-hmm. I, it's kind of like the neat thing about this is you just so identify the Stones as a guitar rock band but right, they were right. missing around a lot with they create bar band music kind of here they don't create yeah. it but like this is kind of like what you would then hear in bars mm. with with a keep somebody had like a synth and maybe one horn player and they would just play these play and dives for the next 20 years yeah that kind of music i think has kind of faded out a little bit but it, it it's pretty cool
1: why do you think critics uh love this album so much despite beyond what we've mentioned
2: here something to study it's dense And not only in track listing, but even in its presentation. And I think that the Stones were a figurehead for a changing world in a lot of ways. And they they were these cute kids who represented teenage culture in the early 60s. And then as they got older and those kids got older and those kids started experimenting with different pharmaceutical and sexual behaviors, they kind of soundtracked that. And then I feel like in 72, they become as much a sociocultural touchstone and their involvement in the world at that point, like Altamont and like this sort of on the run from the government thing that I think is, you know, obviously much more important to them than it is on the world in general. But they sounded kind of like they were coming apart in the same in the same way that the world probably felt like it was mm-hmm. coming apart at that time. I was born in 77, so I don't know what 1972 was like, but I'm a huge fan of uh, literature from around this time and what was going on in the world right then where you felt like the government, institutions specifically, and uh, the military-industrial complex and governments were probably not working with the best interests of people at, at heart. And the rejection of that idea, and even though you knew that, that there was nothing you could do about it, and coming out of the 60s and that feeling, there's something about this record that I think connects to that, and I think critics Mm. love thinking about that. You love taking a piece of music and saying it matters because of all the little things it
0: touches around the world. Along the similar lines... Part of the narrative around this album is whether it's considered the absolute best Rolling Stones album, it's certainly considered one of their best. And one of the things that's interesting about how people look at this album in retrospect is they basically situate it as the last purely great Stones album of kind of their golden era. I I almost want to invoke my friend Chris Malampy's like phrase like the the imperial phase of the stones like this was the capstone of that. Uh, Or if I may borrow from the watchables their apex mountain of sorts. (laughs) But the other side of that narrative is therefore everything that came out after this saw the stones in some state of decline, not necessarily as cultural figures or as people able to sell albums, because they obviously still had hit, hit, hit albums after this. But do you buy into the idea that Exile of Main Street marks this passage in which the Stones, as we know it, after this album, it's just a different group and there's something that's missing from that? Yes. Mm.
2: I do think that they become a company after this Mm. and they're not a band anymore. Um, hmm. And that happens to all bands. I think if the Stones had broken up after this record, like the Beatles broke up right around this time, we'd have a different conversation about th- those bands. Yeah. It would be fascinating if the Beatles had stayed together and played stadium tours every 18 months and sure. went out there and played You know, when I'm 64, when they were 64. I mean, there's all sorts of sliding doors, things, but the Stones surviving and then saying, oh, there's a lot of money in playing stadiums and we can just do this every two years and have ten houses and all the all the things in the world that we have, yeah. and that there will always be a reliable audience who want to come see Jumpin' Jack Flash and Satisfaction and Under My Thumb. <laughs> that's the story of pop culture, right? It's like it starts out as something that's very powerful and special, and then it right. becomes commodified.
0: It worked out for the Eagles quite well, yeah. <laughs> who just this past week, I guess their greatest hits album, Overtook Thriller, which feels... And I'm... I like a lot of Eagle songs, especially on that album, but that just feels wrong.
1: It does feel wrong. Spiritually, (laughs) spiritually, spiritually wrong. Um, I was going to add to your point, like, if this marks a departure in the Rolling Stones' career— it makes sense to me because as I think about what I knew about the Stones afterwards, it makes this album seem indie. Mm-hmm. It makes this album seem mm-hmm. like the Black Album or the White Album or whatever whatever title you want to ascribe to a band that decides to go deep and go different. Mm-hmm. Does it feel indie to you based on what you know? It doesn't doesn't a little seem, bit. Yeah. but
2: in the same way that um, Jay's the Black Album feels indie to me, sure. Where he's just like, this is the, this is the final statement. Yeah. He, yeah. in the same way, yeah. knew. I'm going to capture everybody's attention by making an event out of this record. Whether it was like you know, Stones made a double record that was this this sprawling thing that was recorded as they felt like they were running away from the spotlight that had found them. Jay wanted to make this kind of obituary for his own career, and in similar fashion, not that he hasn't made good music since then. Jay has realized the long-term viability of being Jay Z, air quotes the the the, the corporation, sure. and and. I think that happens to a lot of artists. There's very few that that doesn't happen to Prince and Dylan, maybe. Mm -hmm. You know, who are the ones that you think have like longevity and also maintain that artistic wandering spirit slash integrity throughout?
1: Yeah.
0: You mentioned earlier about paralleling the Beatles and the Rolling Stones up to this point in the early 1970s. Partly in terms of your sliding doors analogy, I was thinking, what would a Beatles disco album have sounded like and could they have pulled <laughs> oh, off boy. anything as good as miss you by the stones which is a sol- <laughs> no i think miss you is great wait Morgan, why are you hiding your face are you do you not ride for miss you do you ride for emotional rescue <laughs>
1: I'm covering my face because I ride for Miss You, (laughs) and I don't know why I feel a tinge of shame. I guess last night this will come up later, but I bought a a Rare Gems disco album, and I was like, and my friend was like, "Oh, you bought your Rare Gems?" I was like, "I only do, I only ride for the best disco." Now you bring up Miss You, and I'm like, "Do I only ride for the best? (laughs) (laughs) Am I a disco purist? Am I whack?"
0: Listen, the Miss You okay. 12-inch mix, <laughs> certified banger. Like, you ever got a DJ out, you throw that on, what's great We're about it— We could have
2: a whole separate conversation on the breaks that you could find in this record. I'm
0: telling you, and yeah. it's a perfect song where you need a bathroom break, you need, like, 10 minutes to be able to do your thing. Like, you just throw that on, you're good to go. I'm telling you.
1: <laughs> it's true. It's true. Miss is a jam. Bro. There's some Wings <laughs>
0: disco songs, right? I'm sure. I don't know if I, I I can think of any of them off the top. But the question famously,
2: what... you know, Lennon. Uh, uh, I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but he showed up. At in the south of France, John Lennon and he was like, "This is too real for me." I think <laughs> he got like really sc- like hammered one day and bounced, and he was just like, "This is too much, guys."
0: Well, it's funny because we recently recorded an episode about David Bowie's Young Americans, yeah. and which was recorded around the same time, right? It's
1: 1972, right? Yeah, yeah. And
0: yeah. you know, Lennon shows up for Bowie's recording studios, but perhaps, yeah, not as real as the south of France <laughs> no. with the Stones, though. No, 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 no. <laughs> but, but my question here. It seems like people can either be Beatles fans or Stones fans. You can be both, but you have to ride for one. Like yeah. This is like a Stevie versus Michael or versus Prince type of thing, right? Okay. Someone There has to be one. Number one, do you have a side? Number two, what is the difference between those sides? And keep in mind, I'm asking this as someone who... I just never have been a Stones fan, and I'm not like a hardcore Beatles fan, but at least I understand the Beatles in a way that the Stones, to me, have always been elusive. So I guess I'm asking you to be a native informant of sorts in terms of what is that split about, and how do you pick your side? I'm psyched to be called a native informant, yeah. so I'm definitely <laughs> going to
2: put that on a business card. Uh, I have a long answer and a short answer. Which one you want? Oh, both. long. In the mid okay, 2000s. I was writing a blog called "Gabe said we're into movements." I was writing this anonymous blog that was uh, formatted as emails to Jay Z, and it was basically <laughs> about my relationship with rap music, but also just like a lot of the music that I was listening to at the time, and it, the you know huge influence and impact that Jay was having on New York in that early two thousands period. It was right. like Blueprint Black album, and and everybody was kind of the he was the sun that everything orbited around, and uh, I was the a complicated time in my life so a lot of these pieces had a certain amount of uh drama or anxiety attached to them and i i, I finished it I think I wrote one piece at the end I don't know, right right around when he did like storytell not storytellers it was something like like he i think he did rock boys it was the american gangster soundtrack yeah, yeah. and that was sort of when it seemed apparent that he was going to continue on into middle age very comfortably yeah. and I wrote this one but there's an unpublished post on get for Gapes that were into movements that is the like the Another piece about it that is an email to Jay-Z that is exactly the answer to the question you just asked. All right. I don't know what prompted me to do this, but it was essentially about how you're either a Beatles or a Stones person and how I was definitively a Stones person. And it kind of broke down all the reasons why that is and the sort of Beatles and the way that they are. Perfect. Like the, everything about them makes complete sense. And you can write books and books and books about like the complexity or simplicity of their melodic compositions. And the stones are just a mess. And the stones are <laughs> just like this. You know, we are completely off the leash and everything is happening all at once. Mm. And we somehow captured it. Mm. Um, and they, it, it, I think it's a very... I don't know how many different parts of your life you can apply that to. Maybe it's safe to just keep it in the Beatles or the Stones thing. Yeah. But yeah, I think there's two different kinds of people. I think there are Beatles and Stones people. I'm a Stones person. Yeah.
1: Who's done the heavy lifting on this album? Is it Keith or is it Mick? If there's a battle of the wills, who won? Uh,
2: Keith won this record, but Mm. if Mick finished it, I don't know what the Keith version of this is. Uh. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know what happens if they come out of the south of France and we're like, we're done. <laughs> we are definitely not doing this podcast. You know what I mean? We're, ta- we're, we're talking about Supreme Clientele instead. Because if they come out and they're just like, yeah, this this guy who has like a debilitating heroin habit just put together an 18-track album and it's that's okay. You know, we're like, let's just get out of our record contract, whatever it was. Yeah. Uh, you know, I I think that Mick did something in L.A. Mm. to just fix it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, by all accounts, the producer was... Jimmy Miller was just as incapacitated as Keith was, so it wasn't like there was a lifeguard on duty. Mm. Mick was a lifeguard.
0: He had to Brian Wilson it. Yeah. (laughs) Was this album right on time, ahead of its time, or timeless?
2: Well, I don't think it's... uh, This is a really good question. I think sonically it still sounds good. So there's lots of records that I adore... Um, especially like a lot of 80s punk stuff that they clearly like the 80s drum sound just doesn't really sound right anymore. Like when you listen to Husker Do's "In arcade and the drum sounds like it's recorded down the street, you know, it, it doesn't quite go. This sounds like it could have been recorded yesterday. Mm. Um, I like to think of it as a little bit of a mix of 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 before its time and ahead of its time. Hmm. Obviously, like, you go back and you it's the same way when you go back with pieces of literature and you hear parts about it that you're like, this just isn't, like, the right way to approach this subject matter. This isn't the right language to use when you're singing. This isn't a way to pay tribute to the people you claim to be paying tribute to. So in that sense, it very much is trapped in amber in that time, you know, when I think that they may or may not have had best intentions. But in terms of its sound, I think it's timeless. I still think that if you... Hmm. Heard this in a bar, you'd be like, "Man, this is really good!" and on these on this PA. You sure, mm-hmm.
1: sure. This isn't an endorsement uh, by any means, but if you could be that high and make this album, <laughs> then what's your excuse if you're just smoking weed? <laughs> Step your recordings <laughs> Seriously. up. Seriously, make a double album. We ask our guests all the time if you had to describe the album in three words, what would they be?
2: <laughs> just say no. <laughs>
1: brevity is the source of wit I love it yo <laughs>
2: <laughs> or yes in this case because these guys are rich and they made books on Main Street so who knows but yeah just, just watching that documentary I think it's a, a pretty, pretty harrowing
0: uh, it's
1: a great documentary yeah it's really cool it's a great documentary
0: we've shouted it out a gazillion times oh Stones in Exile yeah. yes we, I don't think yeah. we actually we mentioned the title but it's Stones oh, in Exile yeah <laughs>
1: The other thing we didn't get to mention is, um, you know, while all this was going on, there was like a gang of kids there. Like, there was a gang of kids. Yeah. And I don't know who the little kid is. Is it Jack Webber?
2: Yeah, I yeah. think it's Keith's kid. Yeah. yeah,
1: he's talking about, like, he was the official joint roller, mm-hmm. and he was seven or eight years old.
2: Yeah, there's re- nothing to recommend here in terms of moral <laughs> behavior whatsoever. <No. laughs> I mean, it's it, it, that that kind of fascinates me, that, that, you know, I don't know that we... I wonder what would happen now if there was like reports of a record being made in these conditions like what we would do I mean, TMZ would just be outside oh of there were like God. the entire time just be you know if and you imagine if there was reports of people being like they've stolen all of this this band's gear somebody it, came
1: wh- through while they're there yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah while they're at, the, yeah. at the, yeah
0: I'm pretty sure some trap rap are not just waiting to happen pretty soon though. <laughs> yeah. that's going to definitely go down <laughs> Well, that will do it for this episode of Heat Rocks with our special guest, Chris Ryan. You can catch his podcast, The Watch, he does with Andy Greenwald. That airs is it twice a week? How yeah, it's Mondays and Thursdays. Okay, uh, and he p- appears on pretty much every other Ringer podcast, especially once NBA season is back in the mix. Where can people find you on the socials?
2: Oh, Chris Ryan, seventy-seven. Never hid the birth year. Here we go. <laughs>
0: You've been listening to Heat Rocks with me, Oliver Wong, and Morgan Rhodes. Our theme music is Crown Ones by The One of People Under the Stairs. Heat Rocks is produced by myself and Morgan. Our booking producer is Shannon Deloria, and our engineering and editing producer is Christian Duenas. Laura Swisher is our senior producer, and exec producer is Jesse Thorne. We are part of the Maximum Fun family, taping every week live in their studios in the Westlake neighborhood of Los Angeles, where you might find some folks tumbling dice out there. <laughs>
1: Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Heat Rocks Pod. You can find a link to our Facebook group on our webpage, HeatRocksPod.com. That's where we'll post show notes for every episode, including a track listing of everything you've heard today and more goodies. Again, that's at HeatRocksPod.com.
0: If you haven't had a chance to leave us a five-star review on iTunes, please consider it. It's how new listeners find their way. And if I can steal a perfectly good idea from our sister podcast, Hushacha, leave us a review and we might read part of it on the air.
1: That's what's up. We also want to thank all of our social media fans out there, um, including Throw the Game. Thank you so much to Aurora Guerrero for hitting us yes. up about that episode, which was great about Mosquita Imari. We also want to thank um, Rostifer. That's cool. want to thank Corey Brown at TCB. We want to thank TK in the AM. That's uh, Keisha Dutess, and them for always shouting us out. Um, we want to thank Butterflake Snowfly, Salisbury Matt, Okay, KK Bracken, and Miss Rhubarb at Burt. Hal Bursma. Thank you so much and we do so appreciate the tweezies and the retweezies. Good to see you Oliver.
0: Good to see you too Morgan.
1: One last thing, our show turns one years old next week. We are accepting presents and such but to celebrate we're launching a special six episode series that we are calling Women Behaving Boldly where we tackle half a dozen of the most innovative and important and ambitious women in the game.
0: We've got some incredible guests to share with you for that series including music journalist joan morgan and evelyn mcdonald as well as dj Lene denise as well as a couple of encore episodes from joy and ann powers
1: but to jumpstart things it's just going to be oliver and i
0: and we will be talking about caught up the bold the bad album by miss millie jackson hey so I have to imagine that Millie Jackson would have been at minimum on the fine line about stuff that your your mom would have been into. Though I'm, I'm also kind of wondering if this was the type of album that she might have been bumping when you were out of the room, just to you know have it to herself.
1: She might have been, but when I go back through her collection because she's got her albums in the living room, I don't see this there. Uh, now her sister, my aunt Jean, rest <laughs> in peace. She played a few of these albums. Mm. She played Betty Wright. We can talk about Betty Wright yeah. later. Um, she played Johnny Guitar Watson, and as I've said many. Many times before when those albums came out that meant the kids had to go downstairs. <laughs> it was a time when kids couldn't listen to the same music as their parents. And uh that's another reason why I chose Millie Jackson, she reminds me of that time.
0: Nice. maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned, listener
1: supported.